BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. who maybe weren't able to make it to the talk this morning. I'm Austin Baraki. This is Jordan Feigenbaum. We're both uh, uh, physicians. We work um, for a company called Barbell Medicine, where we go around and do a lot of education on topics related to physical training, um, uh, fitness, lifestyle, medicine, so to speak, as well as uh, we do a lot with respect to pain and rehabilitation, which is kind of what led us to end up here. Um, and so Jordan gave a talk this morning uh, to the soldiers, kind of a general overview of back pain, um, given how common of an issue it is for humans in general and for soldiers in particular. Uh, this talk is going to be a little different. It's going to cover this a lot of similar content, but it's going to be directed more for the clinician level, because my understanding is that we have mainly clinicians in the audience, physicians, NPs, PAs, et cetera. Um, so it's going to be a, uh, at a bit of a different level of discussion, as well as the main reason why I wanted to have slides to associate with this one is to actually show the evidence base behind the recommendations that we make and why we uh, suggest that you practice in a particular way and why you not do certain other things uh, in order to justify it rather than just saying, here's what I think that you should do. So uh, we're going to uh, begin by establishing the scope of this problem. And again, some of these things are going to echo from what Jordan talked about this morning, but uh, we should recognize that these data from the 2017 Lancet Global Burden of Disease uh, uh, study that they do periodically over time. And unfortunately, with the colors, uh, you can't tell, but um, the overwhelming majority of the map in the world is shaded a deep purple on this map. And that deep purple uh, reflects low back pain, uh, countries where low back pain is the number one leading cause of years lived with disability in those countries. There are a few other countries with slightly different shading. Several of them have depression also being a substantial contributor to that risk, which, as you may know, intimately ties in with issues of low back pain. There are other areas on the map that are shaded a, uh, a more of a pink color where opioid use issues are also uh, fa fairly high up there, which also tie into this problem. So overall, the scope of the problem is pretty enormous. And the point prevalence, i.e. the number of people in the world experiencing low back pain at any given time, is quite high. It's over 500 million people are experiencing this at any given time, meaning that, hey, if you're having low back pain, you're definitely not alone. There are lots of people who are experiencing this, statistically probably even somebody or a few people who are in this room right now. Which then raises the next question is, are we at least getting better at treating this stuff. If it's so common, so prevalent, right? It's 2019. We have fancy technology. We have fancy medications, long-acting meds. We have injections. We have MRIs, procedures, all kinds of things that we can do to people. 
And you would expect that with all these advances, we should be putting a dent in this problem. Well, here are the data going back to 1990 from the Lancet Global Burden of Disease data. Top and bottom reflecting women and men, uh, respectively here, in terms of the top three contributors to years lived with disability. That doesn't appear to be very reassuring, right? So over, over the same period, if you look further down the list, you'll see all kinds of shuffling around. Some things increasing in terms of their contribution to disability, other things going down as we get better and better at treating them. So maybe things like uh, uh, HIV infection, you'll see on that list goes substantially down because we've gotten, you know, modern medicine has been pretty amazing in how we've been able to uh, uh, screen for, address, treat HIV infection, right? Some of these other ones are shuffling around. You'll notice low back pain stays number one for quite a long time, for decades. But then you might be like, well, yeah, but I imagine with all this stuff that we have nowadays, this fancy stuff, that even though it's number one, it should probably be at least going down because we're getting a better handle on this, aren't we? Appears to not be the case. All the higher bar graphs here reflect 2015 prevalence and the lower are in 1990. So prevalence is increasing, not decreasing. A substantial portion of this is, is thought to be related to the growth in aging the population. But nevertheless, over this period of time where we have enormous advances in our abilities in terms of what we can do, we are failing to put a dent in this. So I hammer on this at the beginning because I'm trying to make the case that the established ways that we go about this problem are failing. And so I'm going to present some things at the end of the talk in terms of how we should be doing this. And you might say, that's really impractical in my current practice setup. I don't think that I can do this feasibly. I don't have the time to do this, right, for example. But that is uh, not an adequate response to this. In other words, as healthcare professionals, we need to be advocating for system-wide socio-cultural change on this matter because we're failing our patients when it comes to the management of this stuff and continuing to do the same thing is not gonna get us any better results. So one way or another, something is gonna have to change here and these data should motivate us to say, you know, there's not one magic thing that I'm going to be able to do to my patients to fix them all of this, right? It's a really complicated problem that's gonna involve a lot of social cultural change and even a perfect examples within the military as we started to talk about this morning at our talk. There are lots of uh, kind of specific uh, uh, factors uh, within the military context that are going to need to be addressed one way or another. And so maybe the healthcare professionals need to start kind of rattling the cage, so to speak, to try to bring this to people's attention who are in positions to where some of this stuff can be addressed in a more productive uh, manner. Otherwise, we're not going anywhere. So I like this quote about back pain. Confronted with such a multiplicity of symptoms and causes, the diagnosis is usually difficult or uncertain, and consequently treatment is unsatisfactory. Does this resonate with anybody who sees patients experiencing back pain? Yes, should be like vigorously nodding. I strongly agree with this sentiment, uh, and you'll note that it was said over about 100 years ago which should also make us feel not very good about where we are today since all of us are like, yep, that sounds about right, right? With everything we've done, we've failed to make much progress on this problem. So this should make us question whether we've been approaching this problem all wrong. So this is a great paper on the history, looking back on the 20th century in terms of how have we approached this problem? Where have we gone wrong? They go back to the late 1890s Back then, the, some of the dominant explanations for low back pain, particularly like in women, for example, was this weird diagnosis of hysteria, 
right? Blaming, blaming the uterus for, for various, various maladies. But around that time, at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, we invented the x-ray. So then what happened when we started x-raying people? Well, we started finding things. That's what happens when you look, right? So we started finding all kinds of things on x-rays, changes, and we started saying, oh, that, well, that has to be, right? That appears to be abnormal. That has to be what's causing this individual's pain. So they have beautiful graphs showing how the dominant explanations of the time, the common diagnoses delivered, overwhelmingly shifted now to like bone-related problems, because that's what we could see on x-rays. Then you fast forward a little further and we invent myelography, and then we get CT scans, and then we get MRIs, and with each new invention, we start to see the dominant explanation for back pain shift, right? Eventually then it became, oh, we can find discs that are, you know, appear abnormal, so back pain's all in your disc. That's the problem. Then later on, we get fMRI, and we start measuring changes that are occurring in people's brains, who deal with persistent pain-related issues, and then suddenly, oh, pain's all in your brain, right? Because we can see all these changes on fMRI. We keep making the same mistake over and over and over again, right? <clears throat> this paper, they have two quotes that we like to point out. Number one is that clinicians, like all of us, we have an inclination to trust the results of technical diagnostics more than our personal judgment, and we have an unconscious preference to favor etiologies that are visible, organic, and removable, i.e. things that we can see, things that we can do something to or about. And this is just a reflection of our training. So all of us are trained under this biomedical model when we go through say, medical school, PA school, etc. The idea here is that every symptom has an underlying cause, right? We're trained that a patient presents with a symptom, boom, suddenly a, a broad differential diagnosis jumps into our brains and we start asking further questions because there has to be an explanation for this individual's symptom. Because all symptoms are all uh, uh, diseases are what cause symptoms. So that's the way we kind of think through this model. And if we remove or attenuate the underlying disease process, if we treat it, inject it, cut it out, right, then the reason for the symptoms will be gone and our symptoms will disappear. It's a, nice, uh, 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 it's a nice linear model that seems to superficially make sense. And this leads us to basically constantly be in search of a singular problem to fix, right? Patient presents with a symptom, we want to find a problem to fix. That's the way we're trained. In some contexts, this approach can be super effective, right? There are certain medical situations where yeah, you can find a, sing a singular problem to fix. Yep, there's HIV in the blood of this patient. That's something that we can treat directly, right? Oh, there's a malignant tumor here. We can treat that directly. With pain-related issues, this model fails spectacularly, as it has over and over and over again uh, since the beginning of time, effectively, when we're constantly trying to find a singular uh, cause of symptoms. So how does this play out in your typical biomedically-oriented evaluation? in a clinical setting? Well, first, we have to understand our baseline rates of issues, the, 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 our pretest probabilities, our natural history, things like that we need to have a good understanding of before we can start to talk about specific nuances of pathology, evaluation, and treatment. So you guys are probably already familiar with a lot of these data that 85% of adults uh, experience low back pain throughout life. I tend to believe that this is an underestimate. 
think real world, probably even more <laughs> people uh, tend to experience back pain throughout life. Uh, upwards of 90% of cases are nonspecific, not in the sense that, we, that it's not, not a big deal, that we can brush it off, that we can ignore it. Rather, we cannot identify a singular cause of the symptoms that is directly treatable reverse or reversible. Of course, there's a very good natural history here. The overwhelming majority resolve in a matter of days to weeks. Unfortunately, on the other hand, about a third of people experience a recurrence at some point over the course of their life, which I also suspect is probably an underestimate. But <clears throat> this suggests that back pain is a normal experience. You'll note that the people who don't experience back pain throughout life, they are the exception, right? It's everybody else, the norm, who experience back pain. And you'll notice that the statistics here closely resemble that of something like a common cold. Tons of people experience that. Most of the cases, if we went hunting for a diagnosis, we would come up empty outside of maybe some viral PCR tests and things like that. And the overwhelming majority are gonna resolve, right? It's part of life. But of course, in your biomedical evaluation, you're gonna be looking for red flags. Now, these are also, unfortunately, imperfect. A huge proportion of people with low back pain will present with at least one red flag sign or symptom that we all get taught in our training, despite a very small minority actually having a serious underlying problem going on. So we're trained to search for them, but I think we also tend to put a lot more stock in their utility from a sensitivity, specificity, uh, kind of likelihood uh, uh, altering uh, um, kind of diagnostic process. <clears throat> In other words, most of them don't actually change the post-test probability of severe uh, underlying causes all that much, or at least not nearly as much as we like to think, right? So history, having a history of cancer, major trauma, or being on uh, chronic uh, corticosteroids are situations that should get anybody's attention. And of course, we all need to be aware of not just the pretest probabilities in general, but those in our particular clinical populations. So I work primarily in inpatient hospital medicine, which means I see all the zebras, right? The epidural abscesses, the vertebral osteo, all that kind of stuff. Whereas in outpatient medicine, particularly in a generally young, healthy population, you guys pretest probability is even lower. So you need to have quite a lot of evidence to make a case that something horrifically wrong is going on with this individual, right? <clears throat> What about when we do our history and then we go to our physical exam, right? Everybody has physical exam nostalgia for the good old days where you could make really good diagnoses based on exam alone until you actually look at the performance statistics of a lot of these tests, right? So there's been data on bony tenderness, soft tissue tenderness. We're all trained to poke around, oh, you're, you're sore there. You probably have a muscle spasm, right? It's something that I hear people say all the time or SI joint testing to localize that you have SI joint pain. Well, let's look at the inter-rater reliability. If we took all of you guys and had you examine the same patient using these techniques and we calculated kappa values based on inter-rater reliabilities, let's see how these play out. Not very good, right? Nine out of 10 doctors do not in fact agree that you have soft tissue tenderness at this particular spot. Muscle quote unquote spasm Nobody knows what the hell they're talking about when they detect that on exam. But then consider how this plays out in practice when you tell somebody, or when that's the way you're trained to think, there's a muscle spasm, which is made up. Nobody can agree on it. But then what's the next logical treatment step to offer somebody who has a muscle spasm? Well, you offer them a muscle relaxer. Sure, it makes sense. And then you look at the mechanism of action of a muscle relaxer, and they're centrally acting tranquilizers. 
right? They don't do anything at the muscle, right? You're not giving them succinyl choline or vecuronium to actually relax their muscles, right? Because that would be bad to actually block their muscles from contracting. So think about how the impact of the words that we use to diagnose something and how that impacts your next step in terms of your treatment preferences. Because the same thing plays out with patients. The words we use to label these diagnoses then inform their treatment preferences as well. You tell somebody they have a particular medical diagnosis, well, logically to them, the next step is that I need to get surgery. So I'm gonna keep coming back to this idea of language and the words we use to describe this because it has huge implications for how this stuff plays out in the real world. This in particular is just to point out that, hey, your physical exam when it comes to back pain, probably not as good as you thought, maybe don't worry too much about these particular sorts of findings. They're not diagnostically useful, okay? What if we send them through the answer donut, right? This thing tells us exactly what this patient has. <clears throat> of course, many of you will probably have seen these sorts of data. This is from a 2015 paper. The columns across the top are ages, and these are the incidents, or, or the prevalence, excuse me, of these findings in asymptomatic people who have no symptoms whatsoever across the lifespan. So you'll notice the prevalence of disc degeneration among 20-year-olds. Almost 40% of people in their 20s have disc degeneration, quote unquote. Sounds really bad, sounds really scary, right? These are individuals who have no symptoms, no problems, no disabilities, no impact on their physical function. And then you go all the way across to the people in their 80s and it says 96% of people in their 80s. Anybody here believe that, or is it 100%? I know what I would think if I had spinal imaging on an 85-year-old and it told me flawless, no degeneration whatsoever. I'd say, wrong patient. This is not the scan that I thought, <laughs> I'm looking at the wrong, the wrong uh, imaging result. The point being that you see how high the prevalence gets with age, which suggests that this is a normal age-related change, right? There are lots of other things that have that same sort of prevalence across the lifespan that we don't pathologize to the extent that we do degenerative disc disease. For example, a few things that Jordan mentioned this morning, gray hair. You look at gray hair incidence and prevalence across the lifespan, it probably follows a pretty similar trajectory, right? Maybe a quarter, maybe a third of people, particularly in their late 20s, right? Might be starting to sprout a few gray hairs. But then you go to somebody in their 80s, 96%, okay, I'm gonna say it's 100%, right? Of people in their 80s are gonna have some gray hairs, but we don't go around telling them that they have degenerative hair disease, right? It's a big, we don't pathologize it because it's a normal age-related change, it's not a big deal. Same thing with skin wrinkles, right? People in their 30s might start to have a few skin wrinkles. Might have a little more skin wrinkles, say, if they smoke or something like that. But then by the time somebody's in their 80s, it's a normal age-related thing. They don't have degenerative skin disease. We don't need to pathologize it. So degenerative disc disease, we prefer the term age normal age-related changes. I don't use it as an explanatory reason for why somebody has pain, because I can't confidently link those two. And it's a scary diagnostic term. When you tell somebody who doesn't have any medical training, who doesn't understand this kind of prevalence, that they have a degenerative disease, it's like, ooh, you know? It's potentially really harmful because of how that might impact their subsequent behavior, right? They might leave your office after you told them that they had a degenerative disease, terrified to bend over, terrified to use their back, to do their ADLs, to live their lives. So the words we use here matter quite a lot. 
And there are some interesting other data on a lot of these other findings, including things like disc herniations, right? Even in people in their 20s and 30s, 30 people, you'll find them if you look. No symptoms, no functional impact whatsoever, right? So the point of this is not to dismiss all of these things as never relevant ever, right? But it should make you a little bit less confident if you are to pursue imaging in somebody and you are to find things, how confident should you be in tying them together to explain this individual's symptoms? Is it possible, plausible, or even likely that this finding was present long before they came to you with back pain, right? And now that you looked, you're finding it. So we need to be careful how we frame these things to our patients. And indeed, there are data on what the effects are of radiologists rewording their radiology reports to be less scary and threatening. Patients feel better about it. They feel more in control of the situation, less fearful. Um, which is something that I think is starting to spread a little bit more. I think the last time I worked in a VA hospital a couple of years ago, I started to see radiologists including some of these data in their findings. They would say, you know, evidence of a herniated disc, however, it should be noted that the baseline prevalence of this in this cohort is X percent. So keep that in mind when you correlate clinically, right? That was a common thing that they would add, which I found very useful. What about the predictive ability of these findings? We found a bunch of baseline asymptomatic findings, but you might be like, well, Okay, but maybe if somebody has some of these findings on MRI, maybe they might be more likely to develop symptoms over time. Fortunately, we have some data on this as well. So Tenosu and their colleagues, this was published two years ago. They took uh, 91 individuals with a history of low back pain. They did MRIs on all of them at baseline, checked in on them 10 years later, took in kind of an interval history and repeated MRIs a decade later after their initial one. What were the findings? They found that neither the baseline MRI at the beginning nor the follow-up MRI findings 10 years later were associated with low back pain history during the intervening 10 years. The progression of any findings, i.e. if things looked worse on the second one from the first, also didn't appear to be associated with low back pain, suggesting that maybe we're just seeing progression of normal age-related changes. And they concluded that our data suggests that baseline MRI findings probably can't predict future low back pain. In other words, how much stock we should be putting in these incidental findings on baseline imaging, probably not a whole lot of stock that we should be putting in them. So this leads to choosing wisely guidelines from just about every pertinent organization you can think of on the matter saying don't do imaging, particularly in the early phase with these patients, unless there is specific reasoning to suggest a sinister underlying ideology that needs to be diagnosed in order to alter management, right? In other words, if you were to find what you're worried about and you're still going to say, nah, just go about, you know, try to stay active. I suspect this will get, get better with time, then still no reason to do imaging in that case. Despite all of these guidelines and consensus statements from all these organizations, how well are we doing with this. This was published just last year. <clears throat> they looked at almost 20 million clinical encounters for low back pain over this time period, because again, this is a very common problem. And they wanted to look at the incidence of imaging. A quarter of patients in primary care, a third of patients in emergency care received imaging. This is way higher than it should be given the nature of this problem. <clears throat> Did the guidelines make an impact on this? How good are clinicians at paying attention to this? Uh, not very, not very. The more access we have to fancy testing, the more fancy testing we end up ordering, right? Without recognizing what the consequences of this are on the other side, right? People are like, well, it's just harmless to get, let's just get it. Uh, what could the harms be? 
Well, the harms can be quite substantial. Even if individuals presented with radiculopathy symptoms, right, radiating pain symptoms down to the floor, their outcomes were the same regardless of whether they got early MRI or not. They had much lower rates of going off disability, which should be a major kind of concern for everybody, but in particular in the military context, right? We don't want people to be disabled in any context. You guys have a particular interest in, uh, in your soldiers being you know, physically functional and able to do the, do the jobs that they need to be able to do. But the problem is, ha what, what happens when you get a, an MRI? You find things that suddenly medicalizes their experience. Suddenly their pain is due to a disease. They have a condition. They have a disc, right? That plants a seed in the individual's mind that makes them, that impacts all their subsequent uh, activity uh, and their subsequent behaviors, okay? Because pain is very poorly correlated with the current state of your tissues, particularly when pain has been around for a while. But in general, pain correlates poorly with the state of your tissues. It more is correlated with the perception of threat. It's more correlated with the perception of threat. So the more threat an individual perceives about their symptoms, the greater their pain intensity and degree of disability is going to be. More fear, more anxiety, more kinesiophobia, which is a term uh, that means fear of movement, and catastrophizing, meaning worst case, worst case scenario thinking. Suddenly when we find things, we attach diagnostic labels to it, give it, uh, give it a, a, an ominous meaning, associated with higher threat, higher emotional resonance, and people are more fearful and more disabled, less likely to engage in normal physical activities. And of course, costs are higher, which is not great either. So what does usual treatment look like in this context? Well, somebody has symptoms. We like to treat symptoms. We like to alleviate suffering, right? Okay, so how do medicines do? Well, acetaminophen, paracetamol, Tylenol, placebo-controlled trials, we give it to anybody because it's generally safe, cheap, inexpensive, low risk, et cetera, but no benefit, pretty high quality evidence that there's no benefit to its use in low back pain. <clears throat> what about NSAIDs? Average pain reduction of about 0.8 points out of 10 for low back pain, which is not nothing, something. This is particularly in the acute phase, right? So not as useful at all for more chronic, longer-term low back pain. Muscle relaxants, in quotes, because again, they don't relax your muscles. Two points in terms of pain reduction in the acute setting, so very short-term use, that's something. There is, of course, an increased risk of adverse effects, harms from this, but I understand the clinical population you guys work with might be a little different than the one that I see more often in terms of I'm not going to be putting most of my 80-year-old uh, people who are coming, to the, coming into the hospital on, on uh, muscle relaxers. But in terms of very short-term use, there is some evidence for that. Again, very short-term use. This is like, I would say, a matter of like a couple days. No more than that. Because what do I actually want them to do? Be active, right? Live their lives as normally as they possibly can. Systemic steroids, terrible choice used all the time, Medrol dose packs, way overused for this sort of situation, should not be used ever in this context. Opioids, we don't even need to get in, go down that rabbit hole. Please don't. Uh, gabapentin, pregabalin, this one might be surprising to some individuals. 
right? These neuropathic agents. This is another one where the language can be kind of interesting, right? Because sometimes patients come in and what do they say? I'm having nerve pain, doc. And you might not dig into that further. What do you mean when you say you have nerve pain? It might just be like, okay, I guess I give you gabapentin then, right? It's like my knee-jerk response to nerve pain is to give a neuropathic agent. But there's good evidence on these as well as other anti-epileptics that they don't work very well. And of course, they can cause harm, right? <clears throat> Duloxetine, which we're all trained in, in medical training, is great for back pain, right? It's this weird side effect that we like to take advantage of. Yeah, okay, like that's probably less than a minimum clinically important difference if I had to look at that, 0.6 of a point out of 10, but it is what it is. And then other antidepressants don't have any clear benefit for this, including tricyclics, which are used for pain issues all the time as well, as well in addition to all their additional anticholinergic, antihistaminergic side effects, things like that. So medications, unfortunately, not that helpful, which should make sense in the context of back pain being a exceedingly complex, multifactorial, biopsychosocial problem, right? Hitting a few receptors here and there is unlikely to make a huge difference in this. And I would add that when it comes to acute back pain, we have very little evidence that anything we do can alter the clinical trajectory of acute low back pain, other than keeping people active. So one way to cause harm, get uh, recommending rest, but all the other things that we can do for acute low back pain don't seem to really alter the trajectory. It's gonna get better on its own in the overwhelming majority of people, right? Medications for longer term use, not super effective. What about injecting them directly into the source, into the spine, right? The quote unquote pain generator. Well, for radicular back pain, you get seven, seven and a half points out of 100 on average. So 0.7 point pain reduction, which is again, not nothing, but probably less than a minimum clinically important difference and no long-term benefits in this situation. Some people may on a case-by-case -case basis with a patient who has confirmed you know, acute lumbosacral radiculopathy, for example, end up choosing to pursue that. But in general, I have a hard time recommending this for broad use in this kind of a situation. Not only non-zero risks associated with them, but to the extent, I mean, in spinal injections are known to have a substantial placebo response, right? And some people might say, that sounds great, the problem is you're conditioning somebody to a placebo response. And then we end up with patients like many of, many of the folks who I used to see at the, the VA, for example, who would just come in Q3 months for their routine injections for the rest of their lives for something that is non-efficacious as compared to placebo. That's not okay. We shouldn't be conditioning our patients to this stuff, particularly when there's non-zero risk. So would not recommend. With all this said, usual care quote unquote, this was actually just published literally like, you know, two weeks ago, <clears throat> almost 200,000 patient encounters in family practice and emergency room settings. They found that less than 20% of patients in these settings received evidence-based information and advice from their family practitioner. Less than 20% received evidence-based advice. This is a big problem. Usual care included overuse of imaging and opioid prescription and underuse of advice and information. And advice and information is the number one thing that we can offer individuals in this situation to at least get them through the acute phase, right? Longer term stuff gets even exceeding exp exponentially more complex, right? But just giving somebody a script for something and not giving them any information or advice on this situation is a huge problem. The way I like to frame this sort of situation is not unlike when you're, say you're, uh, you're in the hospital and there are these things called universal precautions where you have to wash your hands before in and out of every room or wear contact stuff for, for patients with certain infection related issues. 
I prefer universal precautions for patients presenting with acute pain syndromes, and I'm going to treat them as if they are at exceedingly high risk of progressing to a chronic or persistent pain state. I'm going to treat them with as much education, information, advice, try to debunk myths, assuage their fears, get them active, things like that, in order to minimize the risk that they're going to progress to a chronic pain situation. Do this with everybody up front, and you'll be doing as much as you can in the acute phase. So universal precautions here. They argue that suboptimal care, as shown here, may contribute to the massive burden of the condition worldwide that I showed you guys at the beginning. So this brings up language again. <clears throat> the enduring impact of language on patients. When surveyed, this is a group of about 150 patients with chronic low back pain. When they were surveyed about their beliefs about low back pain, they said that they had very negative beliefs. They thought back pain was very negative, very complex. It was, uh, it was likely permanent. They viewed the body as like a broken machine. That was their conceptualization of this problem, that they were broken. And when asked then, where did you get these ideas from? Where did these beliefs come from? Almost 90% said they came from healthcare professionals. The same healthcare professionals who took an oath to do no harm appear to be doing a whole lot of harm to their patients by giving them negative ideas, beliefs about the nature of their pain, the meaning of their pain, the expected trajectory, the natural history of their pain. We're giving them really harmful negative ideas and beliefs, either in the way we say things or by failing to give them uh, advice in many situations. So chronic low back pain in some contexts has been argued to be an iatrogenic disorder from this perspective. There are a lot of things we could be doing that we're not or things that we're doing wrong that are harming patients. So keep that in mind. Expectations drive outcomes in this situation. So when patients come into us with low back pain, what do they want? Also, this was just published within the past six months. They want clear, consistent, and understandable information on all of these factors. Now you'll notice the first two, a cause of pain, an underlying pathology, diagnosis and imaging, those are tricky conversations to have, right? It's tricky to help somebody understand that they have a symptom. Their assumption is I have a symptom, so something must be wrong. If nothing was wrong, I wouldn't have a symptom. That's this, this is that linear biomedical model of thinking, but pain is really complicated. It doesn't fit this model. So that's a difficult conversation to have and is a lot of what uh, Dr. Feigenbaum talked about this morning with the soldiers in terms of how to frame this. And we'll come back to this. But they also want information about the prognosis of their symptoms, the impact on their future disability, their ability to work. They wanna know about precipitants of low back pain, i.e. flares, and what they should do in those situations, how they should manage those. This is where we fall flat a lot. Again, failing to give information and advice to patients. It's underused in these situations. So what should we be doing? Not using a rigid linear biomedical approach for one, right? Falling into this trap of, oh, you have a symptom? There has to be a cause. Let me go searching for it with an MRI, for example. That's gonna lead you down a path of causing substantial harm and finding a whole bunch of false positives and red herrings that uh, are, be, are un, both unfruitful and increase risk of disability for our patients, which is not what we want to be doing. Furthermore, there are growing arguments uh, in the literature on this that we should be, uh, in many, most cases, if possible, shifting our therapeutic target away from the pain score itself. I'm sure you all feel similarly to how I do about pain scores, but for many patients, 
zero pain may be an unrealistic goal. So what should we be focusing on? We should be focusing on optimizing physical function as much as possible, right? We are limited, even with 2019 technologies, we're limited as far as how much of an impact we can have on pain, right? You can look at every possible intervention, even the stuff that we recommend, education and exercise for this kind of thing, has a modest to moderate effect on pain intensity. I can't tell you what, you know, we can of course take people's pain down to zero with enough drugs, but that's not an ideal solution either. So sometimes reframing or shifting therapeutic targets to living as well as you can with some uh, discomfort, with some pain, uh, or optimizing physical function uh, may be a more uh, realistic goal or target to work towards. So what are some of these predictors of uh, good physical function outcomes versus the opposite, being more disabled? Well, low socioeconomic status, potential for compensation, which I know is, a, is an issue in military contexts, uh, psychological distress about the nature and meaning of pain and its potential impact on them. Catastrophizing, again, referring to worst case scenario thinking. So somebody has a backache and it must mean that I fractured all my vertebra or all my discs are now herniated. That's like people, sometimes people actually think like this, right? Fear avoidance behavior, the belief that because pain means damage, that means that anything that hurts, I should avoid doing it. That's a negative, harmful uh, kind of line of thinking and leads people to become more and more disabled as they withdraw from more and more activities that are associated with any discomfort. So whereas the classic joke about doctors where a patient shows up and says this hurts and the doctor says, okay, don't do that, that's bad advice, right? We want to get patients engaging this activity that is associated with potential threat. Pain, again, being threat perception, not uh, uh, tissue damage uh, in terms of a one-to-one -one correlation there. And that might involve a bit of a conversation, a bit of education to say it's okay to work into a little bit of discomfort, right? We want to optimize your physical function here. And low self-efficacy is a big one. This is one of the biggest predictors of chronic kind of persistent pain related issues. Self-efficacy referring to the individual sense that they have a degree of control over the situation, that they have a role to play, that they have things that they can do about this. The opposite of this would be like a learned helplessness kind of scenario where they feel like there's nothing they can do to impact the situation. They need somebody else to fix them, to inject them, to medicate them, whatever, right? So low self-efficacy is a bad sign here. So we should, one of the things we should be aiming for is trying to find ways to put the patient in the driver's seat on this get them to play a role in their own care, to understand that they have a role to play, that there are things that they can do to optimize their physical function and potentially mitigate their symptoms, ideally. And not MRI findings, as I discussed earlier, are not going to be predictive of disability in this situation. So all of this is to say it's really, really, really complicated, right? Really complicated. I fully recognize that. And that's part of why there's no easy answer here part of why it's so prevalent in the world. I wish I could swoop in here and show you guys like, you know, a fancy, fancy manual therapy technique to like make pain disappear, but doesn't work like that, never has worked like that and never will work like that. You have to treat the human, <laughs> treat the human, not the disc, right? Because again, we are so tempted to find an isolated pathoanatomic cause of pain and treat that, right? This is, this is what happens when you go, do we have any orthopedic surgeons in the audience? All right, good. This is what happens when you go to the orthopedic surgeon's office, right? You get a, a preclinic x-ray 
which may or may not be indicated, but it's required to show up. And then they already know what your diagnosis is before you come in, right? Because they've looked at your picture. And if the picture doesn't show anything, then they probably don't need to see you because there's nothing to cut, right? That's the biomedical thinking in a nutshell, right? <clears throat> but we need to treat people, not their discs, not their facet joints, etc. Pain is really complicated. It impacts people in very, very complicated ways. So we need a biopsychosocial assessment of people. Assess the biological risks. What are some of the biological risks that we might come across? Well, one is some of the red flag stuff that, of course, we have to, we have to check for, we have to look for, right? But what are other biological factors? We talked about some of them this morning with the soldiers. One might be their physical training load, right? How much physical load are they under in terms of their training, being out in the field, et cetera, compared to how much training load are they prepared to handle? Have they been adequately trained up to handle the loads that we are putting upon them, right? <clears throat> Fatigue state. Sleep state, other concomitant illnesses, right? All of these things can feed into pain. Psychosocial stuff, which I'll get into that in a little bit. That assessment is what significantly under, underdone in practice when it comes to this stuff. This start back tool is one, it's like a, a, a small questionnaire. I'm not a huge fan of these because everybody who comes to talk to you about a clinical problem, they have their own validated questionnaire that they want you to do with their patients. And I know that if I were in, you know, in that situation, I'm not going to pull out a new questionnaire for every patient that sees me throughout the day. But if you're into that kind of thing, this is one that you can use to risk stratify your low back pain patients in terms of how, what intensity of intervention are they going to need? Are they high risk of progressing to a chronic persistent pain issue, perhaps because of really low expectations, fear, avoidance type behavior, catastrophizing, low self-efficacy, things like that? That tool can help you risk stratify that. But I personally don't use it in practice. I just get to know the person. Right? Ask them questions and I'm like, oh, this person's got a lot of problems that we're going to have to work on versus using a questionnaire. So assessing these things, which I just mentioned, and again, self-efficacy, getting a sense of how in control do they feel? Do they feel like they have a role to play, that there's anything they can do is really important. Because if they say no and no and I need you to fix me, that's a, bad, that's a, a yellow flag up front. Right? That's something that should get, catch your attention and you need to work on that early. So current guidelines on this stuff suggest a few steps, listening, connecting to the person. Tell me about your experience. There's some evidence even that just listening and data gathering itself can improve outcomes. Even if you don't do anything else, <laughs> just listening to people's story and data gathering can improve outcomes on this. What have you been told about your back before? One of the most useful questions that I find you will be amazed at some of the things people have been told, right? I've been told that I have severe multi-level degenerative disc disease and I'm one wrong move away from being paralyzed. People have been told that. So how do you think that person is going to carry themselves, live their lives day to day? They're going to be like, yes, I better not bend the wrong way or I'm like, you know, toast. That's, a, that's inducing disability. That is doing harm to a patient, right? Now, we don't think about it as doing harm in the same way we think about harm from a, a wrong site surgery or a medication, you know, mess up or something like that. But in my mind, it can be at least as big of an error, if not more, because you're potentially disabling somebody for the rest of their life if these beliefs get too deeply ingrained. What are you most worried about? This is a question I ask every single person that I meet in the emergency room. I don't know why they came in. What are they most worried about? Maybe there's something easy that I can just give them reassurance on right off the bat. 
right? <clears throat> also, it'll tell you what they're worried about so that you can focus some intervention on reducing their psychological distress, anxiety, and fear over the issue, which is a huge contributor to disability. These are very good questions to ask. Reassurance, resetting expectations, therapeutic targets, and providing advice. Remember, usual care right now, less than 20% of patients are receiving evidence-based information and advice. Give patients information and advice on the matter. They should be uh, uh, recommended to stay active, remain at work. The more permission to be disabled we give people, the more disabled they tend to get, right? So staying at work, that even from a symbolic standpoint has huge significance for people when they say, I can't work because of my symptoms, right? The second one is perhaps the biggest thing that we can convey to people. Remember how I'm making the case, the argument that pain is more reflective of threat perception as it is modulated by biological, psychological, and social factors. And so if somebody is afraid to do something or if they experience pain with doing something, that reflects a degree of threat perception. What we would like to do is de-threaten activity. We want bending over to be perceived as safe. You're safe to move. Exercise to be safe because it is in fact very safe. The risks of exercise are exceedingly low. All that stuff is social influences that are percolating into our brains and making us believe that our spines are fragile structures that need a whole lot of protection. When really, evolutionarily, Right? They're there to protect the, one of the most important structures in our whole body, our spinal cord, that lets us move around. They're pretty robust structures. They're pretty resilient structures. They can adapt to load. Both our vertebra, our discs, our ligaments, all that stuff can adapt to load. Right? So we need to get people to trust their backs uh, uh, rather than viewing them as fragile structures that need to be protected. Because catastrophic spinal failure doesn't really happen almost ever outside of, say, somebody has severe end-stage osteoporosis and they get in a highway car crash, then you might have some significant tissue injury, right? That's a unique situation. In general, not a huge deal. So again, universal precautions with people. Debunking myths. In general, I don't like going out of my way to debunk myths like in the public sphere because it's difficult to change people's minds. But this is one where there can be some innate ingrained beliefs in people's minds that if left unaddressed, you will never make progress with the individual. So examples, the meaning of pain, people's belief that pain means damage. This is something that particularly in, in the osteoarthritis population leads to a huge amount of disability because they feel that any movement means they're, they're like, you know, I can feel the snap crackles and pops in my joint. That means I'm doing damage. When what do we know about OA? Exercise, strength training, improve outcomes markedly right? Which doesn't make a lot of sense if you're under the mindset of it's a wear and tear kind of thing, which is why I don't use those words with patients. You tell somebody you got wear and tear, but I want you to go lift weight. They're going to be like, that doesn't make sense. I'm not going to do that, right? So instead, the way we frame these things, the way we explain them uh, really matters. So the meaning of pain as threat rather than uh, damage or injury is really important. Again, this idea that we should just avoid things that hurt, not a fan of it. We have to engage the threatening activity. Perhaps it might need to be modified in some way. Perhaps the dosage of activity might matter, right? So if somebody has some back pain with bending over, I want them to bend over. I want them to pick stuff up. Now I'm not gonna say, yeah, you got low back pain. I want you to go and deadlift 500 right now. If they're not prepared for that, right? 
But if they're a thousand pound deadlifter, then maybe I might say, yeah, go pick up 500. It'll be easy for you. Not a big deal. It's about what you're prepared for. Uh, are you prepared to do what you're trying to do? Engage the threat. This idea of uh, spinal fragility is one that should be challenged with people because the spine is not fragile. <clears throat> the role of posture, asymmetries, any number of other explanations when it comes to back pain. If you go around to any different type of clinician, practitioner, layperson, uh, a healthcare professional, and you ask them about their explanation for why somebody has pain, you'll get like a million different explanations for this stuff. There's no correct or incorrect posture you'll see lots of different postures in the room right now. We can occupy lots of different positions. We can do lots of different activities. And the dosage of activity matters far more than the absolute positions that we occupy. How long are you trying to do this thing? How much are you trying to do? Are you doing too much too soon? So we don't demonize or vilify any particular uh, position uh, when it comes to, to posture. We're, we're optimists when it comes to this stuff. You can do a whole lot of things and you can adapt to do a whole lot of things, which is good news. And of course, the role of imaging is another one that is a big myth that needs to be addressed with patients. Lots of patients come in wanting it. That can be a challenging conversation to have, but it needs to be had. <clears throat> What's another example of a myth is that people feel that they might have a herniated disc and they're toast. That's it. Done for life. I had uh, about two months ago, I had an inpatient. She was a 65-year-old uh, woman who was admitted for a, a heart failure exacerbation. And the residents were presenting this patient's case to me. And they said, oh, by the way, she's been bedbound for like 30 years. And I'm like, she's like in her 60s. What's the deal? Why is she, why is she bedbound? And uh, we went and asked her. And she said, it's because I have a herniated disc that was diagnosed like 30 years ago. She's been in bed ever since. Right? And you shake your heads, you're like, that is insane. That's ridiculous. Right? But who knows what she was told at the time? Right? Maybe she was told, and she, she had motor function in her legs. She was not actually paraplegic from this. Who knows what she was told? Maybe she thought that I have a herniated disc, my spine's done. My life is over. I can't move around. It's too dangerous. I could be paralyzed with any wrong move, something like that. Right? I wonder how her life trajectory may have been different if somebody pointed out to her that discs heal, right? And this is not just a case reportable event here, even though I'm pulling this from New England Journal, not a case reportable event. Look at the incidence of spontaneous healing of herniated discs, particularly the worse the herniation, the higher the likelihood that it heals. Disc bulges, yeah, they're not even a problem in my opinion. So whatever, I don't care about that. <laughs> But more severe, down below, extrusions, sequestrations of the discs, they're the most likely to heal of them all. What if she had been given that information 30 years ago when she presented with some back pain, which may or may not have been related to the disc herniation they found on the imaging at all? Maybe she would have been thriving for the past 30 years instead of being bedbound, becoming morbidly obese, developing heart failure, and then having the pleasure of seeing me in the hospital, right? Again, the, the, the impact that you have with the words you use with your patients is literally like life altering. I wish I can like emphasize this more in terms of the power that you have to either set patients up for success or do potentially irreparable harm to people, depending on how you discuss this stuff with your patients or just even in social contexts with one another, right? If you're at a party and you're talking about back pain, how many people are willing to jump up with their idea about why you have back pain or what they did the last time they had back pain or their dad who got spine surgery and he's been paralyzed ever since. I'm like, I don't need to hear any of this, right? 
So the psychosocial influences here are really, really, really critically important. So for this reason, it has been argued that mass media campaigns are needed to counter all of these misconceptions because they're out there. Jordan and I cannot do this on our own, right? Even if we had a few of you guys jump on board, we're still, you know, hopeless against a lot of this stuff. That's why we're traveling around, educating, inoculating, immunizing as many people against these problems as we can. But I recognize even from your situation, you're in clinic, seeing a ton of patients, short appointment times, lots of uh, 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 confounding issues, military hierarchies, incentives, disincentives, things like that that are really complicated, right? So we need to get more people involved in this, higher up people involved in this, mass media campaigns. Maybe we need to start with a mass media campaign within the military, show that we can get better outcomes. Then it jumps out to the real world. Who knows? Right? But this is not something that I, again, can give you a magic fix for. It's a whole socio-cultural thing that needs to shift. It's going to take a long time to do, but that's why we're here. So in addition to uh, listening and connecting with the person, eliciting their story, giving them information and advice, debunking myths, we should also be promoting shared goal setting and self-efficacy. Again, putting the patient in the driver's seat with this stuff rather than setting the idea, the expectation, the narrative that they need clinicians to fix them. Because we can't, right? We'd like to think we can, but we can't. Even the surgeons among us in this situation, we can't fix them, okay? So asking questions like, what would you like to be able to do the most? What do you feel you can't do right now? What kind, of, how, what kind of steps do you think we can take to start working towards that? What do you think you can do in this situation to get closer to doing that? And they may have some ideas, which may be a great, op you can say, yes, absolutely, let's start with that. Or they might have no ideas because they have low self-efficacy and they don't believe they have a role to play. Well, you've just screened for, caught that, and you can start to work on it, right? Of course, this requires establishing some rapport and some trust with your patients, but of course, that's part of the process of treating a human rather than treating a disc, right? You don't need a disc to trust you if you want to cut it out. Unfortunately, that doesn't work. So you have to treat the human. So our overarching goals, the two things that we are here to try to do, or the two things that we're, we try to do when we give these sorts of talks, is alter people's learned responses to pain and establish a plan for graded return to valued activities, things that matter to that person. Now, altering learned responses, this is tricky, right? Because you guys are mostly dealing with adults who are having back pain. And these adults may have had a whole lifetime of accumulated learned responses to pain based on their understanding of what pain is, what it means, what should be done about it. Maybe they, have, maybe they grew up their whole childhood seeing a parent with a bad back, right? who didn't move, who didn't exercise, who used a motorized wheelchair or something like that because of their back or like the, the patient who I had in the hospital. How might that experience have impacted on her kids and their learned responses to pain where they're like, oh, my back hurts. I don't want to end up like my mom. Oh no, it's happening to me. Why me? Right? So this is hard. So we have to evaluate, we have to get a sense of what people's history and experience has been with this stuff so that we can start to shift it so they can respond to pain in a more productive manner. Less fear of movement, more willing to engage in activity, uh, uh, particularly those activities that are deemed to be threatening, which may be a trap bar deadlift for your population. They may deem that profoundly threatening. 
So we need to de-threaten that activity, alter people's learned response so that their anxiety and heart rate doesn't shoot sky high when they just see a trap bar lying on the floor in front of them. That's a profoundly threatening thing to some of them. Profound threat means higher risk for pain. So we need to steer that ship in the other direction. So what does this look like? Is there evidence for this sort of thing in terms of uh, combined shared goal setting on this stuff, plus giving people information and advice compared to just giving them advice alone? Well, here's differences in disability outcomes when it comes to pain in this situation. Just giving people advice, modest effect. Advice plus shared goal setting, regular follow-ups, checking in on that. And here's pain intensity differences. Notable differences, right? Again, we can't take pain to zero in everybody, but this is the best shot we have based on current guidelines, current evidence. And the fact that again, less than 20% of patients are getting this stuff is a shame. So hopefully we can start to make some improvements on that front. So when we're gonna recommend exercise to patients, what should that look like? What things should we emphasize more or less? Well, what, here's what matters less. So I would not put tons of your emphasis here. There's no one specific type of exercise that's been demonstrated to give better outcomes than any other. The specific details of the exercise program, doing sets of six versus sets of eight versus sets of 12. In, in pain-related issues, no evidence to believe that any one is better than another prospectively. It'll just be based on how the individual feels about exercise, their perceptions, and what they're willing to engage in. Specific exercises. As well as we do not prefer putting an enormous, inordinate amount of emphasis on moving perfectly. There is no one perfect technique. People move in a variety of ways. They can adapt to move in a variety of ways. And additionally, constantly barraging people with narratives of you have to move perfectly, you have to do it this way. If you do it wrong, what happens? Your spine explodes, bad things happen. That's counterproductive. That's increasing the threat associated with movement and exercise, right? So we teach people, we coach people ourselves, we teach them uh, lifting technique and how to lift efficiently and how to lift the most weight because that's what a lot of people want to do. But we don't pair it with a narrative of uh, pair it, not pair it like the bird, but pair it with a narrative of you must move this way, otherwise horrible things will happen. That's really harmful. Because again, then what happens is you have somebody setting up for their deadlift and they are hyper vigilant, focused on their low back. Like, if I feel anything wrong here, I need to stop and sprint out of the gym. Because this is a very, he, he told me, I have to move perfectly because it's such a dangerous thing after all. It's like, no, it's not particularly dangerous. Resistance training is pretty safe. You can move in a whole lot of ways. If your, back, if your spine flexes a little bit, it's actually not a huge deal. So we can coach people for movement efficiency, but again, be careful the narratives, the words that you craft around this stuff. We want to de-threaten movement, not increase the threat value associated with movement. On the other hand, what matters more is people's perception of exercise. Is it threatening? Is it dangerous? Right? Most people out there, I won't say most because I don't have a reference for that, a lot of people view resistance exercise as dangerous, which does not have supporting evidence for it. It's quite safe. So we need to de-threaten this activity. You guys have no choice but to de-threaten it because your soldiers are going to have to do it. Right? I don't think they're going to go back on this plan. Right? At least I hope not, So, because I think overall it's incentivizing good things, getting people more trained. The question again is, are you prepared to do what you're being asked to do? Or have you never deadlifted before and now you're showing up to do a three rep max? Yeah, that's silly, right? <clears throat> so 
de-threatening, improving perception of exercise, increasing self-efficacy, showing people that they can do this, that they have a role to play, and the dosage of activity. The dosage of activity, how many sets, reps, the absolute loads, things like that need to be start low, go slow, just like we do with medications or anything else in, in, in practice when we have time to work on things. So the ideal situation is people start training yesterday for their ACFT that's coming up in six months, not a week out, right? There are lots of, I mean, this all comes down to behavior change, which is like what family practice is or primary care is. And it's hard, it's just as hard as behavior change in obesity or any other uh, kind of context. But again, you guys don't have a choice. If we keep doing what we've been doing, we're gonna get the same results we always got that I showed you at the beginning. Horrible outcomes, increasing prevalence, more disability. So one way or another, things are gonna have to change on this front. Take home points. Acute, nonspecific low back pain has a very good prognosis. We should tell patients this. We should set these sorts of expectations that it has a good prognosis. Give information and advice. <clears throat> Specifically, that they should remain active i.e. not rest, bed rest, etc. Stay at work. We're trying to alter people's learned responses to pain, right? So if somebody's learned response over a lifetime of having maybe recurrent episodes of low back pain, I've heard this before is, oh, I tweaked my back again. Last time I did this, I was laid up in bed for six weeks. What are they telling you? Their expectation is that they're gonna be laid up in bed for another six weeks. We need to alter that learned response. Instead to say, oh, I tweaked my back, but I know nothing bad is going on. It's probably gonna get better on its own. I'm just gonna go on living my life, right? That's the ideal situation here. Inappropriate use of imaging causes real harm. Biomedically focused interventions, i.e. those that are focused on finding, treating, removing a specific pathoanatomic lesion are generally ineffective and low value care. Uh, versus a biopsychosocial approach that emphasizes uh, patient reassurance, that, that promotes individual self-efficacy, and that de-threatens movement. All of these things improves outcomes. So we want to provide reassurance, self-efficacy, and de-threaten movement. And language matters. Hopefully I made that point uh, uh, very clearly to you guys so that you're very aware of the words you use, the narratives that you provide your patients in practice. And then if we can get that back up, that would be ideal. There's two, there's just a few references that you guys, that I would recommend uh, for you guys. <clears throat> One is reference for clinicians. Um, I consider it essential reading for anyone who is in primary care. Uh, it is the Lancet Low Back Pain series. It's two articles published in spring of 2018. Uh, it's just lancet.com slash series slash low back pain, but real like state of the art, top-notch, that they form, that stuff formed the structure for our talks. Um, highest recommendation. And then resources for patients. There are a few, and these are more for persistent or chronic pain, because again, acute pain, low back pain, there's little we can do to modify it other than staying active. One is a website called tamethebeast.org. And this is a website that is uh, dedicated towards uh, kind of reframing, rethinking persistent pain and how we can approach that with patients. And then there's also a phone app. It's called Curable, C-U-R-A-B-L-E. Um, and this is effectively like CBT in a phone app for patients with persistent pain. It provides a lot of this education uh, and reinforcement and lessons and stuff like that for people who are working through chronic persistent pain related issues to educate them on this stuff. So it's called Curable and Tame the Beast is the, the website. Lancet series for clinicians. That's all I have.
uh, uh, thank you guys very much and uh, happy to take questions.